Well, as I mentioned before, it was uh, I, I want to say thank you uh, for Pastor Dave filling in for me last week while I was able to be with my family away on vacation, and thank Wayne Tuning also for filling in for, for Will while he was gone last week. And of course, now Dave uh, has left to go to Guatemala with the Guatemala team, and they are gone. They left yesterday. And uh, we are wanting to continue to pray for them while they are uh, there serving the Lord in, in that country and, and being our representatives from Ivy Creek uh, as they are there. And certainly we want to pray uh, for all eight of them as they, can, as they this week will be engaged in a number of different uh, mission opportunities, evangelism, as well as uh, uh, just working with folks there in that city and, and with churches that are there. So we want to continue to lift them up. Pastor Ted has tagged out with me, and so he has gone away on vacation right now. So there's been a lot of musical chairs going on uh, in, in, in the office this last week. Willene has been the one who's been there, and she's been solid, and we're thankful that she's been there for us. Uh, but uh, we just want to continue to thank you for giving us the opportunity to be able to spend some time with our families and uh, get away. One thing I did fail to mention uh, earlier, I want you to be aware of this. Is, if this is your first time with us, there's one of these cards in the back of your pew we want you to take an opportunity just to fill that out for us we promise that we will not show up at your door unannounced and if you provide us all that information really we just want to be able to communicate with you and let you know how glad that we are that you're here so if you would do that we would greatly appreciate it you can drop that in the offering basket when it comes by at the end of the service this morning and that would be your gift to us we would love to be able to give a gift to you if this is your first time on your way out I've got a little something I want to give you and be able to to, to let you know how grateful I am that you have come and joined us this morning. So if you drop by that table that's on your right-hand side as you leave this morning, that would be uh, a great thing. We would appreciate that. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark, and this time to Mark chapter 5. And, and we're actually going to read from verse 21 down through verse 43 uh, this morning. That's going to be a, a long text, but we're going to try to take all of that in today. And as you're making your way there, I just wanted to declare to you something that you hopefully already knew, and that is I love my wife. She's in the back right now actually taking care of some stuff for me, and I'm very appreciative of that. I've got a lot of reasons why I love her. Matter of fact, it was 20 years ago this past, on July 4th, it was 20 years ago that I asked her to marry me, and she said yes. <laughs> Not sure she'd do it again, but she did that time. Uh, there's so many things that I could tell you why I had a list of them here. Tremendous mother, talented, beautiful. Uh, she's got the prettiest blue eyes and the sweetest smile that I've ever seen. Um, lots of things. Here's, here's something else she did, though, this morning. You know, I'm, I'm obviously, as you can tell, sometimes I'm a little absent-minded. And today I brought everything that I thought that I needed here. And I got here and I'm ready to leave to go out to come over to preach in the first service. And what I did not have was my Bible, actually. I'd taken that with me on vacation and left it laying on the kitchen table when I walked out this morning. And so I had had to grab another Bible to come over here to preach with, and here she came in bringing me this one. And this is the only one I really like to preach from. And so she knew that. And so she came bringing that to me this morning. It's things like that, that that really make me appreciate and love her. Here's something that you may not have known about Caroline that I want you to know. She's frugal. Some might even say she could be cheap. But I would say frugal, because that would be the more appropriate word to say. What I mean is that she can squeeze a nickel and get the buffalo to yell out of it. That's what I want you to know. Now, that doesn't mean that she's afraid to spend money. She's not. She will spend money on things, that went, but, but it has to be a good deal. 
For example, the other week she went to the grocery store and I went out to help her bring in the groceries after she had gotten them and we were bringing them in the house and I just kept bringing, getting these boxes and, and you know, boxes after boxes of cereal. And we started stacking them up and I'm going and I kind of looked at it and before I could even say anything, she goes, they were buy one, get one free. <laughs> so now you know how to get my wife's attention. If, it's, if you put something on sale, buy one, get one free, that she likes. BOGO is about, I think, the, a, a favorite anacronym around our house. Well, there may be many of you in this room that are kind of like that. You're always looking for a good deal. Perhaps you like the buy one, get one free. Well, if you do, here's what I want you to know. Today, you're going to love this story from Mark's Gospel that we're going to look at because you get two miracles for the price of one in this story that we're going to be looking at this morning. Beginning in verse 21, working down through verse 43, we find Mark tells us the story of two different individuals that are very different on the front end. As a matter of fact, the Lord's interaction with, with these two people tell us some interesting differences between the two of them. One of the people that we're going to look at this morning is named, the other one is not. One of them is rich, the other one is poor. One approached Jesus from the front, the other one approaches Jesus from the rear. One was at the top of the social spectrum in Israel, one was a, a, a social outcast. One sought help for his daughter, the other sought help for herself. In many ways, these two people who approach Jesus are as far apart as you can imagine two people being. And yet, what unites these two people are, are not necessarily just the two miracles, though that is part of it. You see, one of the miracle stories that we read about this morning is actually sandwiched in between the telling of the other one. But really what unites these two individuals, the thing that they have in common is that both of them had reached a point of helpless desperation because they faced critical problems that neither one of them could fix on their own. And it was in their desperation that both of them approached Jesus. And the grace that Jesus displayed toward both of these individuals really serves as a powerful testimony to what His grace can do for all kinds of people, even, even for you and me. May I just say to you this morning at the outset that a sense of hopeless desperation is often the prelude to the outpouring of God's grace. We're going to see that in our text this morning. So begin reading with me there in verse 21 of Mark's Gospel, the fifth chapter. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Now, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him. And a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now, a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but, gra but rather grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I only may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately, 
the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing but the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house and said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. And when he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. When he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother and the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was laying. And then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. And they were overcome with great amazement. And he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given her to eat. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Father, help us to see ourselves through your eyes this morning. And that by seeing ourselves through your eyes, we're able to understand your word and that it applies to us just as it applied to them. Pray that you'd open our hearts and make us more like Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I mentioned to you in my introduction that these two miracle stories are tied together. But as you no doubt noted, these two people couldn't have been really any more opposite of one another. Jairus is a man who is named. And matter of fact, in Mark's gospel, he's one of the very few men outside of the disciples who are named he, he is named. The, the woman, on the other hand, she's anonymous. She's not given a name at all. Jairus was the ruler over the synagogue. I mean, he was a man of power. The woman, however, because of her disease, she would not have even been allowed to go to the synagogue. Yet, as one author I, put, I read this week put it, he said, the Lord often brings people together and then work so that they can take encouragement from one another about what he is doing in their lives. I think that actually happens here. I think that these two people, though they are as far apart as two people could be, when they see how the Lord interacts and works with the other, there's encouragement that they can gain from that. And I think that's something that you and I ought to be able to gain encouragement for as well as we see their stories and read them for ourselves. We can look at each of these stories individually but I think that would diminish the impact that they make, both individually and collectively. And so this morning, what my goal is, is for us to look at their stories together. I would like for us to, to be able to note their differences, but also to note their, the, the things that they have in common with one another. 
And then as we look at those two those things, as we work our way through this passage, draw out some points of application that are necessary for you and I even today. And so that's my, that's my goal as we work through this text this morning. Let's begin by noting that upon his arrival back from the Sea of Galilee, back from the other side where Jesus had been, and he had delivered the Gadarean demoniac of the legion of demons. That was where we left off the last time when we were together. You'll note that they, as he came back across from the other side of the sea, that he was once again met by these enormous crowds. That has become very commonplace in our study of Mark's gospel, that Jesus is constantly under the, the, the loom of, of, of great crowds of people. But within this crowd... That the ones who came to see him that day was a man named Jairus, as we said, the ruler of the synagogue. Now, we don't know a lot about Jairus. There's not a lot of extra biblical references to him that we can learn anything about him. But we do know that he was significant, and we do know that he's interesting. He's interesting, first of all, because, as I said, he's one of the few characters that Mark gives a name to outside of the disciples. We also recognize that he's interesting because being a synagogue ruler... He comes from and is associated with the group of religious leaders who had been opposing and seeking to persecute Jesus and defame him. So immediately up front, we're thinking about Jairus. And he's a synagogue ruler. He's one who's going to be against and opposing Jesus. And yet what we find is that Jairus' attitude toward and his approach of Jesus represents not one of opposition and not one of aggression. Rather, his attitude is one of desperation. He approaches the Lord directly, but then notice what Mark tells us. It says that he fell at Jesus' feet and he begged Jesus to come back with him to his home to heal his sick daughter. Now, no doubt Jairus had, had found out and known of Jesus' ability to heal. He had seen the massive crowds that had packed in around Jesus. He had no doubt heard the stories of those. Perhaps he'd even talked to some of the people who had been healed of their own diseases but at this point, to this point, all of that had remained distant. All of that had remained removed from Jairus until his own little girl got sick. Now Jairus finds himself on his knees in front of Jesus, begging for him to intervene. I don't believe that means that we ought to just immediately jump to the conclusion that Jairus was now a follower and a, a, a devotee of Jesus. I don't, I don't know that that's exactly what we should immediately think. I don't believe we ought to immediately jump to the conclusion and think that he was a man of great faith. In fact, as Kent Hughes comments, Jairus was like many of us when we first came to Christ. It was not his love for Christ that brought him to his knees. It was not what he could do for Christ that brought him to Jesus. Rather, what brought him to his knees before Jesus was his need. It was his desperation, but it was also a glimmer of hope. That brought him there. And it's that glimmer of hope that causes us to recognize that in coming to Jesus, Jairus did exercise faith. He believed enough in Jesus' ability to, to heal his daughter that he was willing to risk being ostracized from the religious establishment in Galilee of which he was a part. And he was willing to humble himself before Jesus in his despair. And then Hughes, in his writing, goes on to point out that despair commonly is the prelude to grace. I wonder if you've ever thought about that. If sometimes our despair and our desperation is something that is so, so awful for us to imagine, and yet 
God may often allow that to happen to bring us to the point where his grace can pour into our lives. It certainly was the case here. Now, Mark tells us that Jesus immediately and without hesitation sets out with Jairus. He, he goes to, to, to travel with Jairus to his house, but as soon as the caravan begins to make way, there's an interruption in the procession. Beginning in verse 25, we read about a woman, a certain woman who's never given a name, but we do find out that she had been afflicted for 12 years by a disease that had caused her to hemorrhage blood. Now, that just in and of itself is bad enough. To think about having a chronic illness and a disease that has been plaguing you for 12 years, that is bad enough. But I want you to note just how desperate her condition actually is. Based upon what Mark reveals to us, beginning in verse 26, there's the obvious thing. There's the suffering, the physical suffering, the discomfort, the pain that was accompanied by her disease. But notice also that she had... She had experienced many of those exact same things even worse because she had gone to so many doctors. Doctors who in their own way, had, I have no doubt, attempted to help her, but what they had done was only make the matters worse. They had only exasperated her further. No doubt they tried to help, but things had only degenerated into a more difficult situation. But then Mark tells us that that the woman's pain was not only physical, it was financial. She'd spent every last dime she had trying to get the help that she needed, and yet there was no help to be had. Now she not only was diseased, she was destitute. She had no further resources. But here's the not-so-obvious thing about that. She likely was alone. Had she been married at some point earlier in her life because of her disease, it's quite likely, quite, quite tremendously likely that she had been divorced. No one wanted to be around her. Not only that, but because of her disease, she was one who was ostracized from the rest of society. According to Leviticus chapter 15, someone who suffered from the disease that this woman had was considered unclean. And because of their uncleanness, they were relegated to the out, outsiders. They were, they were pushed outside of normal society. Therefore, we could say not only was she diseased, not only was she destitute, she was disenfranchised as well. And that's what leads to her desperation. Consequently, in verse 27, notice, having been failed by everyone, having been failed by everything, she stealthily, she, she comes up behind, but yet she's bold in that she took matters into her own hands. The Bible says that she reached out and she touched the hem of Jesus' garment. Gerald Bilks, he notes that the word touched here refers to taking a determined hold of something. It's not just a, a passing brush. It was not just to barely touch it with one's fingertips. No, the, she reached out with a determination to grab onto that robe. And when she did so, though, she did not want to be noticed. She, she, unlike Jairus, who came and approached Jesus openly, she did what she did behind the scenes, hoping no one would ever see. Now, what's evident is that the woman believed that touching Jesus' garment would, would bring her healing. And therefore, we must also acknowledge that her faith in Jesus was essentially rooted in magic. It was essentially rooted in superstition. It certainly was not a full-orbed faith that understood the power of Jesus to heal was not in his clothes, but in fact was in the fact that he was the Son of God, the Messiah, Nevertheless, we must also recognize that in her desperation, she did reach out in faith 
to Jesus, and Christ honored her imperfect faith. So as we look at the first two sections there, and the first two people that we see in these these passages, what I want to do is, is to draw a conclusion from what we see there to begin with. And so two very different scenarios, two very different people, and yet they have both come to Christ in their desperation. That leads me to the first point that I want you to note on your outline. The first point of application that I want us to see this morning is this. Just as Jairus and the woman exercise faith by reaching out to Jesus amid their hopeless desperation, so must we recognize our own spiritual hopelessness and exercise faith in Jesus. You see, just as we've seen in the previous episodes that we've been looking at in the Gospel of Mark, so we see here that the characters in this story are not so distant, they're not so remotely removed from us. In fact, we, we really need to recognize that apart from a, a true faith in Christ, we are as hopeless as this father who recognized not only that, that death was, was, robs us of life, but that death is imminent. He knew that unless Jesus did something, his daughter would die. And friend, I want you to understand, death is imminent for every single one of us. It may not be this afternoon, but the fact that death is out there is something that none of us can shake. Death is an imminent result of all of our lives. We should also recognize, though, that because of sin, we are as diseased as this woman. Like her, we are also unclean. And furthermore, we should also know this. No matter what's in our bank accounts, no matter how large our bank accounts are, no matter how small our bank accounts may be, it does not matter. We are unable to change our circumstances with that which we have. We are incapable of switching things around. We are, we are sinful and death is on the horizon for every one of us. And we cannot change that. Friend, the hopeless desperation of Jairus and this anonymous woman remind us that each of us find ourselves in the same condition if we truly understand the gravity of sin's effects upon our lives. And what the scriptures teach us and call for us to do is to come to an end of ourselves and reach out to Jesus. If you'll recall, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus did, starts out with all the things about who's blessed in the world. And he says something really interesting there. He says, blessed are those who mourn. That really doesn't make sense to us. How is it that someone who mourns can be blessed? Well, the reason why those who mourn are blessed is because they realize just how desperately hopeless they are apart from Jesus. And that desperate hopelessness drives them to Him, to reach out to Him and exercise faith in the only one who can save us and free us and heal us and give us new life. Now, there's something further that I think needs to be pointed out. What, this did, what the woman did by reaching out and touching Jesus was unlawful. She broke the law by doing what she did. And it's obvious that she knew that she was breaking the law because she tried to remain anonymous. She wanted to, to do it in such a way that she would go unnoticed by everybody in the crowd. As I mentioned earlier, according to Leviticus chapter 15, the law forbade her to come in contact with other people because of her uncleanness. Since she was considered impure and unclean because of her disease, by her mere contact with someone else, 
well, that individual would also now become unclean. Consequently, having touched him, Jesus would now be identified with her uncleanness. Keep that in your back of your mind, and then let's fast forward to the end of the story that I read for you earlier, and that's what takes place there in the little girl's bedroom. Because remember, when, when Jairus first came to Jesus, his daughter was at the point of death, but she had not yet died. But by the time we get to the end, we recognize that she had already passed away. She had gone. She had, she had breathed her last. But Jesus goes on to the house anyways. And in verse 41, Mark tells us that coming into the little girl's room, Jesus took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Now, what I want you to know is that Jesus reached out and touched the hand of this dead little girl. To do so, once again, according to Levitical law that we read about in Leviticus chapter 22, well, that would have meant that Jesus would now be considered ceremonially unclean. Why? Because he had touched a dead body. The simple thought behind both cases is this. The unclean woman's touch of Jesus' garment and Jesus' touch of the dead girl's hand was that touch communicated, touch transmitted uncleanness. Therefore, now by his touch, Jesus is identified both with the woman and the dead girl in their uncleanness. And that leads me to the second point of application that I want you to see this morning. The second thing that I want you to note is this. Just as Jesus identified with the ceremonial uncleanness of both the woman and Jairus' dead daughter through his touch, He's identified with the spiritual uncleanness of us through our sin, through his incarnation. In his book on the miracles of Jesus, Vern Poitras has noted that ceremonial uncleanness, as outlined in the Old Testament law, symbolizes the deeper spiritual uncleanness of sin. He says Jesus, by his touch, symbolizes his identification with sinners and their sin. In other words, what we see illustrated for us in both of these miracle stories that Mark is related to us here is the incarnation. In the incarnation, Jesus took on flesh. Jesus, God of very God, emptied himself, as Paul writes about in Philippians 2. He emptied himself and took on, made himself of no reputation. Literally, he made himself nothing. He he took on the form of a bondservant and he came in the likeness of men. Though he was still fully God, though he possessed all of the, the qualities and characteristics and attributes of God, Jesus also touched humanity and took on the full qualities, characteristics, and attributes of a man. And not just any man. He didn't come as a, as a king. He didn't come as one who was imbued with all kinds of power on earth. No, he came as a pauper. He came as a slave. He came as one who had no rights, no rank, no privilege, no significance, no status, other than coming as one who would serve others. And how did he serve us? Well, through his incarnation, Jesus came and identified himself with the uncleanness of sinful humanity. Though he himself lived a perfect, sinless, holy, spotless life, by touching humanity, by becoming man, he was able to provide us with the remedy for our sin that, he, that we might be made clean. And it's these two miracle stories that we've just read 
communicate to us. Instead of Jesus becoming unclean, by his touch of both the woman and the little girl, cleanness is actually transmitted to them. He was not made unclean by his touch of them. As a matter of fact, it went the opposite direction. Cleanness from him was transmitted to those who had previously been unclean. In fact, note what happened to the woman. She grabs hold of Jesus' garment, and in verse 29, Mark says that immediately the fountain of blood was dried up, and she felt that her body was healed of the affliction. Not only were the symptoms taken away, it went all the way to the fountain of the blood. The complete disease was, was robbed of this woman. Jesus took it away. It was done. Immediately, she was healed. She not only felt that healing course through her body, but Jesus did as well. He recognized that, that power had gone out from him. So he turns and he asks, who touched me? And the disciples are incredulous. They can't believe. How could you ask such a question? Look at the large number of people that are around you and you want to know who touched you. Many would point to this example here as being where Jesus in his full humanity voluntarily limited himself as knowing all things. We know that he was limited in other ways physically. He became tired. He needed to sleep. He became hungry. And many would say that this is another example of where he voluntarily limited himself of, of knowledge. But I would almost say this, this to you here. Notice verse 32. After saying, asking who touched me, he looked around to see her who had done this thing. Philip Graham Ryken makes a compelling argument that Jesus really did know who touched him. And that his question was designed to bring the woman who had touched him out of hiding for the sake of the crowd and for her own benefit. In other words, by his question, Jesus was actually calling the woman out to give a public testimony of God's saving work in her life. You see, up to this point, she had, she had been afraid to be exposed. But Jesus wanted her to know, and he would like for us to know as well, that what he does for us is never meant to remain private and confidential. Instead, when his grace is imparted to us, it is intended ultimately to be shared publicly so that he may receive the glory and the honor. Mark tells us in verse 33 that after Jesus asked the question, who is it that touched my clothes, that the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, she came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And in doing so, listen, she became an evangel. She became someone who shared the good news. And she bore testimony of Jesus' power to heal. Jesus responds by praising the woman's faith and sending her off, healed and restored. And notice when he does, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say to her, woman, the magical power of my robe has healed you. That is not what Jesus says to her. Rather, he says this. He says, daughter. We could spend a lot of time just on that one word, daughter. Woman who had been forced out of society. A woman whose, whose relationships had been severed because of her disease. A woman who could call no one now is called daughter by Jesus. She who had had no relationship, had no one, is now a part of a family. She's a part of God's family. That's the first thing that Jesus does. But then he says this, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. 
what a beautiful response. Think about this. Not only was she healed of her sickness, not only was she now joined to God's family, but Jesus says to her, go in peace. He affirms that the uncleanness that had marked her life for the last dozen years had been taken away, and now she's been restored. She's been restored to wholeness and to the community of God. In her touch of Jesus' robe, he had not become unclean. Rather, her faith unleashed God's power into her life, and her uncleanness had been taken away. No sooner did she leave than we see the group came from Jairus' house saying, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any longer? The overt message of that was communicated was is that daddy's little girl had died. This was the news that he had dreaded hearing more than anything else. No doubt Jairus had been probably wanting this procession to move on a little quicker. But they had been delayed because of the woman's interruption. And that delay had now transpired so long that the little girl had died. But don't miss this as well. Notice that the people not only told him that his little girl had died, but they said, why trouble the teacher any longer? In other words, in their mind, Jesus was only a teacher. He had great power, yes, but his power was confined to and limited by the terms of life. Once someone had died, Jesus' ability to do anything for them was long since gone. And so now there's no reason to trouble him anymore. His, he's been defeated by death. There's no reason to bring him here. She's already gone. Jesus looks at Jairus in verse 36 and says, Don't be afraid. Just keep believing. They get to the house. There's the wailing and the flute playing and the people singing dirges and crying. And this was something that was very common to have happen in ancient Near Eastern cultures. It was, a, it was viewed as an indicator of just how great love was for the deceased. But Jesus wasn't having any of it. He dismissed them. He ran them off. He said, the child is not dead, but is sleeping. Now, it should be noted that Jesus was not saying that the girl had not died. He wasn't saying that her heart was still beating when it wasn't. In fact, the term sleep is a common euphemism for death in the New Testament. Jesus knew that this little girl would live, would rise to live another day. So he referred to her only as sleeping. In fact, physical death had obviously occurred because in his account of this miracle story, Luke says it this way. He says that after Jesus had spoken and touched the little girl, he says that her spirit returned, which by necessity means that her spirit had left her before Jesus spoke to her and touched her. It's in that that I want you to focus. You see, through his touch, Jesus reverses the little girl's death. He takes what had happened and he turns it around and brings it back the other way. In doing so, Jesus displays his power to remove the girl's uncleanness. Because think about this. She could no longer be considered unclean because she was no longer dead. Therefore, that brings me to the third point that I want you to see. The third point of application this morning is this. Just as Jesus removed the uncleanness from the woman and from Jairus' daughter, well, friends, he removes the guilt of our sin from us through his death on the cross. Remember what the Scriptures teach us. The Apostle Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin 
and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, Peter writes. And he's quoting the prophet Isaiah there from Isaiah verse, chapter 53, verses 4 and 5, where he writes this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Friends, here's the message of the gospel. By Christ's death, we may have life. Because he was stricken, we can be healed. On the cross, he was alienated from the Father so that we might be reconciled to the Father. Jesus identified with us in his incarnation and he saves us by dying in our place. That brings me really to the last parallel that I want us to draw from these two miracles. And the fourth point that I want you to note this morning on your outline is this. Just as Jesus gave new life to the woman and to Jairus' daughter, he gives spiritual life to all who will place their faith in him. Here's the point that you and I need to recognize. We're just like this woman in that we cannot fix our own problem. No amount of self-help, no doctor, No amount of money, nothing, nothing could make us right with God. And like this little girl, we too, apart from Christ, remain dead in our trespasses and sin. We have no life and we have no hope. Therefore, what we must come to understand is that sin has rendered us diseased, destitute, disenfranchised, and dead. And friend, that should make you desperate to come to that understanding. When you truly come to understand your spiritual condition, apart from the saving work of Jesus, hopeless desperation is the only way to describe it and to understand it. And it is that type of hopeless desperation that drove Jairus and this anonymous woman to Jesus. And it should drive each and every one of us to the foot of Christ as well. You see, faith in Christ, as we have seen from this text, is what unleashes the life-giving, saving power of God. The Lord's grace and mercy flows out of an, an unlimited supply to those who will by faith receive the good news of Jesus and put their faith in Him. That's really what we learn from these two very different miracles and yet very similar stories. So Mark's given us a two-for-one deal today. And what these miracles have reminded us of is that in our desperation for life and for forgiveness of sin, we must come to faith in Christ. Recognizing that in His incarnation, He has identified with the spiritual uncleanness of our sin. What they also remind us of is that Jesus not only identified with us in His humanity, but that through His death on the cross in our place, He removes the guilt of our sin. Consequently, the message of the gospel that these two miracles remind us of is that Jesus gives spiritual life to all who will place their faith in him. And that leads me then to my sermon in a sentence this morning. My sermon in a sentence is simply this. Because sin leaves us spiritually unclean and hopelessly desperate, we must exercise faith in Jesus. He promises to pour out his mercy and grace, remove our uncleanness, and give us new life. The question 
that I must ask you this morning is simply this. Have you come to that place of hopeless desperation? Do you recognize that you are in dire straits apart from Christ? Perhaps you've searched for answers. Perhaps you've, you've tried looking in other places and every time that you've tried to find something, you've come up empty. Perhaps you've been trying to work things out on your own. What this passage teaches us is that there are no other answers. There are no other places that you can turn to other than to Jesus. He is the only hope for hopeless sinners like you and me. The question is, will you turn to Him in faith today? Will you trust in Him? His death on the cross, far from signaling His defeat, actually signaled His victory over death, hell, and the grave. And He offers that same victory to you and to me if we will receive His mercy and His grace through faith. If you have turned to Him, and that is your testimony, if you know firsthand of the grace and mercy that He offers, then friend, you cannot remain silent. Christ calls you to make it known that He has touched you, that He has healed you, that He has delivered you of your uncleanness. We who have received His grace and mercy must tell others about what He has done in our lives. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God, and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together.